the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. It's a delight to see and to have all of you here this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray, as always, that the words of my mouth, the meditations, the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the second Sunday of Advent, and I've entitled our lectionary series, Palpable Dissonance, because hopefully that's what you're experiencing here in worship this morning. Hopefully, you will experience a dissonance between the mood here in worship in the general holiday mood everywhere else. Do you know this word dissonance? Have you heard it before? It's from the realm of music and it refers to a lack of harmony between notes or a clash even of disharmonious sounds. That's happening right now in worship because as I said last week, outside of worship, Andy Williams is singing. It's the most wonderful time of the year and holiday Christmas shopping has begun. Holiday parties are happening. I was at one last night and Christmas movies are back and we're hearing the best way to spread holiday cheer is singing loudly for all to hear. One boy in the last service shouted that. It was his moment this morning, but we're hearing that outside of worship, but in worship, we're hearing something's coming. We were driving back from Thanksgiving in Oklahoma last Saturday. It was raining hard the entire way, all six or seven hours. The whole family was packed into my son's pickup truck. And the reason we drove his truck is because we had so much stuff with us, hunting gear and coolers of meat and all of our bags and golf clubs, all the Oklahoma essentials. And we're about at the halfway, it's kind of true, we're about the halfway point in Mineral Wells, Texas. And I was going about 30 miles an hour coming out of Mineral Wells and I hit the gas to accelerate, but we didn't accelerate. But the RPMs 
revved really high in my truck and his truck and it slipped a gear. In fact, I, I tried to, to hit the gas again and it wouldn't shift into a higher gear, which is of course a sign that the transmission is going out. So I pulled over in Mineral Wells to talk through with Alyssa what our options are. And we realized very quickly, there aren't a lot of options in Mineral Wells, <laughs> Texas. We almost rented a U-Haul. It was kind of our only option to put the boys as well as our stuff in the back. But in the end, we decided just to drive really slowly about 50, 60 miles an hour all the way back, which made all of the people on those back roads really happy with me. Many of them told me that I was their number one favorite post-Thanksgiving <laughs> driver as they flew around me. But the point being that the truck slipped a gear and I knew something bigger was coming and that there was nothing I could do about it, that it was coming. And all I could do was be as prepared as possible for when the inevitable finally arrived. And that's the mood of Advent. Advent is a season of expectations and preparation for God to come to us. And so here's an Advent question for you this morning. And that is, what is the proper response when God does suddenly appear? So two questions or two points this morning to answer that question, the assumption and the power. First of all, the assumption. What is the underlying assumption of our gospel reading that Craig just read for us? Or what is John the Baptist's underlying assumption that leads him to dress and to act and to speak so strangely as he does? John the Baptist is the man of Advent. More than anyone else, he is the representative figure of Advent. And what he especially represents is Jesus's in-between comings. And here's what I mean by that. There are two historic, big, world-shaping comings. Advent, as we say at the beginning of worship every Sunday, means coming. And there's two world-shaping ones. There's the first, which is the incarnation, in which God is born as a human to Mary. And then the second is what I preached on last week, Jesus' second coming, where he comes to set the entire world to right, to put everything to right and to end and wrap up human history. But in between those two historic comings, Jesus still comes. And how does he come? Well, John tells us here in verse 11 that he comes through the Holy Spirit. And I often tell you that the Holy Spirit's main job is to make Jesus present on earth as he is in heaven. And he especially does that through the reading and preaching of God's word, through partaking of the sacraments and through prayer, all of which we're doing this morning, which makes that question that I just asked a moment ago, all the more pressing upon us. What is the proper response when God suddenly appears? What is your proper response? Even this morning, when God comes to you, when Jesus comes. And John the Baptist tells us, he not only tells us, he shows us with every aspect of his being, everything about him unambiguously presents an underlying and driving assumption, his attire included. Verse four tells us that he wears a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt, which you need to know was neither fashionable nor normal at the time. It was very uncomfortable, rough and coarse hair. And so of course it was cheap. And very, very simple, basically a camel hair rug that he cut a hole in and put it over the top of his head and then cinched it up with a leather belt. And what it tells us is that John was very serious about what we read and what I preached through this fall from first John, especially first John chapter two, when the apostle John says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. John is not loving the things of the world here. Do not love the world or the things in the world for all that is in the world, the cravings of the sinful nature, the cravings of the eyes 
The arrogant pride and possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away with all its cravings. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And John is serious about this truth. We often aren't, but he is. We often aren't, especially at this time of the year. If serious, oddly dressed John is representative of Advent for the church, what character, what person is representative of the holiday season for our culture? I was thinking about this last night at my Christmas party that I was at because it was a costume Christmas party. The costumes were quite amazing. There were a lot of options there for who it would be that would be the representative figure for our culture. And one of the hosts and many other people, in fact, were all Buddy Elf. And even the one that I quoted just a moment ago, and I quoted him jokingly, but more seriously, I think he very much could be the representative figure for our culture at this time of the year, because more than anything else, Buddy the Elf is silly. And we have become a silly people in our culture, preoccupied and focused upon, obsessed even with silly things that do not truly matter and will ultimately pass away, clothes included. Do you know that Jesus speaks at length about clothes in his most famous sermon, the most famous sermon ever preached just a few chapters later in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 6, Jesus speaks about money, and then he speaks about food, and then he speaks about clothes. And you know what he speaks on after that? Anxiety. Because those things he knows make us anxious if we inordinately focus upon them. So he has to say, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Not right now, it isn't. Not for many of us with our constant cadence of holiday parties. Life can seem like more, not much more than food and not much more than clothing. And John would say it's silliness. It's just silliness. And speaking of food, did you notice what John eats? His diet is? Verse four, it's locusts and wild honey. No one ate like that. It's weird. It's odd. It's discordant. But it's not silly. It's serious about the world passing away. What else is pretty serious about John is his volume. Do you notice what he cries out here? You brood of vipers, exclamation mark. And there were no exclamation marks in the original Koine Greek, but it's appropriate here because his words are loud and exclamatory. And more than that, they're accusatory and critical and corrective because he assumes, and this is the assumption, he assumes something is wrong. That's Advent's assumption, that something is wrong with the world. Something is wrong with us, with each of us. Notice also that everyone is coming out to John, not just some people, everybody. Verse five says Jerusalem's coming out and all of Judea and the region around the Jordan. So the urban elites are coming out to John the Baptist, as well as the farmers from around the countryside and all the nomadic desert people, all of them, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that's really everyone because these two groups, very different people, They represented all of Israel's national leadership at the time, similar in some ways to our Republicans and Democrats, because the Pharisees were the conservatives. They were the populists. They had the ear and the support of the working class, while the Sadducees, on the other hand, they were the elites, those who had formal positions because they worked and colluded with Rome. And so they were rich and credentialed and sophisticated. And here's what they both did. And this is an application for us. They both blamed each other for everything that was wrong with their world. 
They blamed each other and they hated each other. They hated each other because they blamed each other. And the more and more they blamed each other, the more and more they hated each other. And the more and more they focused on the other person's and the other group's wrongs and faults and weaknesses to the point where they totalized the other as villains and then totalized themselves as victims. And I wonder if that sounds familiar to you. It should sound familiar. Not just on a political level, because our this is certainly the cultural climate for us politically now, but it should sound familiar to you personally, maybe very personally for some of you. Because your husband is a Sadducee and you're the Pharisee, or your sister is the Pharisee and you're the Sadducee, or it's that person at work, or it's that former friend, or it's that, that group of people, those woke people, or those Trump people, or those brown people, or those black people, or it's the white people, or the gay people, or, or all the old white men, or whomever it may be. It's them. They're the problem. They're what's wrong. Him, her, them, but not me. Not me. Not us. Them. Friends, to whom does John speak in verse 7? It says, when he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he spoke. So to whom does he speak? To whom does he call a bunch of baby snakes? You brood of vipers. That's what that is. Really, do you know what he's calling them? He's calling them children of Satan. It's not very nice. Because he knows, he's anticipating their objection in verse 9, that they would say, we're children of Abraham. We're the Jews. We're God's chosen people. We're not what's wrong with the world. We're what's good about the world. And what John is saying to them is, no, 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 you're both wrong. They were both wrong about not being wrong. And they were united in that. That's why John could speak to them both together because they were very, in the very same in the way they approached the ceremony, the ceremony that marks sorrow over one's own guilt and an acknowledgement that you yourself need serious change. They approached it with pretense and utter insincerity. And they feigned participation while they focused upon everybody else's faults, everyone else's sins, everyone else's wrongs. They did that, ignored their own, focused on everyone else. And so too do we, so too do you, so, so do I. This is John's assumption. Are you ready? Here's his assumption that you are the problem. That's his assumption. You are the problem. I'm the problem. We're the problem. Advent begins with this. And so are you here for yourself this morning? And are you being serious about your need for change? Because if you are, point two will be an encouragement to you. Point two is the power, the power specifically for change. Some of you may be thinking, man, John the Baptist is kind of a jerk. Some of you may be thinking, Tim, you're kind of a jerk. Well, yes and no. No, in the sense that John is not unique in his seriousness. He's the last of all of the Old Testament prophets who came before him. And maybe you notice what Isaiah said to this very same people, to the people of Israel. He starts off in our Old Testament reading, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of God, you people of Gomorrah. Do you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you remember that story in Genesis? This was the ultimate insult that he could offer to these people. He's insulting them because he's wanting to get their attention. He's wanting to get the attention of people who won't pay attention. He wants a silly people to take what he's saying seriously. Every few years at Advent, I read to you this Flannery O'Connor quote. Last week, I mentioned her and her story, A Good Country People. But this 
this quote explains so much about John the Baptist, explains so much about Advent. This is what she says. She said, the novelist with Christian concerns, and she's a novelist with Christian concerns. The novelist with Christian concerns will find in modern life distortions, which are repugnant to him. The problem will be to make these appear as distortions to an audience, which is used to seeing them as natural. And he, the author may well be forced to take more violent means to get his vision across to this hostile audience. When you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs as you, you can relax a little and you can use a more normal way of talking to it. When you have to assume it does not, you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you have to shout. And for the almost blind, you have to draw large and startling figures. Sodom and Gomorrah were large and startling figures for Isaiah. John the Baptist himself is a large and startling figure. But notice where Isaiah moves on to in our Old Testament reading. He doesn't stop with large and startling figures. He moves on to verse 18, where he says, though your sins are like scarlet, your Sodom and Gomorrah are like sins, like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Friends, the gospel is not, you're not that bad. It's not, you're not that bad. And because you're not that bad, God loves you. It's not the gospel. The gospel is also, you're, you are so bad, so pathetically bad, God could never love you and nor could anyone else. That's not the gospel either. The gospel is you are far worse than you ever dared admit. Far worse off far more broken, selfish, and sinful than you ever dare admit, but far more loved by God than you could ever conceivably imagine. And he will come to you and he will forgive you and he will change you because first and foremost, he loves you. I hope you hear the tension in that because both things have to be true for that message to be authentically Christian. And the, and the world will try to remove that tension. The world will try to say, God loves you, so you don't need to change. Don't change. God loves you. You don't need to change. It's not the gospel. Nor if you change, then maybe, just maybe, maybe, then maybe God will love you. It's not the gospel. It's not Christianity. Not even close. And John the Baptist, he maintains this Christian tension. Speaking about the need for change, even the demand for change, but also the power for change. And he offers two images for what change is like. He speaks of an axe and a winnowing fork. And we know what an axe is. And we probably don't know what a winnowing fork is. Actually, we do. A winnowing fork is just a pitchfork. Because what ancient farmers used to do is they would beat the heads of the grain, of the, of the stalk. They would cut down uh, the, the crop. And then they would beat the heads in order to dislodge the kernels from the heads. And then they would take a pitchfork. And they would throw it all up into the air. And the heavier kernels would fall down to the ground. While everything that was lifeless and empty would then be blown away by the big wind on the top of the hill. And and the grain would fall to the threshing floor. And that is the image. And that's the idea behind both of these images. The idea is what is lifeless is being separated and removed. It's being cut down by an axe. It's being tossed up in the air by a pitchfork and blown away. And then both are being burned. Again, large and startling figures. But what comes right in between these large and startling figures? The ax is in verse 10 and the fork is in verse 12. What comes in verse 11? Right in between. John says, he who is coming. That's who comes in between. Jesus himself. John ties both of these images to Jesus. He is the one with the ax and he is the one with the pitchfork in hand. 
Interesting that we normally associate Satan with the one who's holding a pitchfork, but in the scriptures, it's Jesus who holds it. And you must remember to understand all this, what I told you last week, and that is that with Jesus, judgment and redemption always comes together. Before you can and receive the salvation, the redemption that he offers, you have to know and to admit that left to yourself, you are under judgment and he will swing his ax and he will, he will use his pitchfork to cut off things from your life and to take away things from your life and from you so that hopefully you might wake up and recognize that life without him is not actual life. It's just like I mentioned last week with Helga and good country people from Flannery O'Connor. And if you weren't here, go listen to the sermon or go read the short story and you'll get it. But Manly Pointer, the, the smarty me Bible salesman, he comes to her and he steals her glasses and he takes her prosthetic leg. And the question that we're meant to ask is, is that judgment or is that redemption? And the answer is it's both. If losing her glasses and losing her leg will lead her to do what John speaks of doing here, which is repentance. Friends, listen, repentance is possible for us for two reasons. The first is the ax has already swung. The pitchfork has already swung as well. At the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 23, Jesus says the exact same words to the exact same people that John says what he says here to the Sadducees and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, Jesus says, you brood of vipers. And then four chapters later in Matthew 27, it's not the brood of vipers who are on the cross. It's Jesus. The one who's mightier than John dies. The one who swings the ax and brings the fork. He's the one that's cut down. He's the one that's tossed away. He's the one that's burnt up under the judgment of God against our sin. So the judge who will come has already come and has been judged in our place. So we don't have to fear judgment. We don't have to fear repenting and admitting all that we are, all that's dark and broken and damaged about us. We don't have to ignore it or pretend that it's not true and to live in pretense and insincerity. We don't have to do that because for us, because of Jesus, repentance doesn't lead to judgment. But the second reason that we can repent is that Jesus doesn't come just to forgive us. He also comes in order to change us. In fact, forgiveness in one sense is just God's means of being able to maintain his holiness, but get close enough to us to change us from the inside out. So he forgives us so that he can change us. And again, the Holy Spirit is his means of change. And notice the Holy Spirit too is like a fire. No one in in this passage escapes the fire. Everyone goes into a fire. The people who are like trees that don't bear good fruit and the people who are like chaff, they go into a fire. But so too are those who are baptized by the Holy Spirit. They go into a fire, but the fire they go into is the very life of God. The very life and presence of God being poured into their heart, as Paul says in Romans 5, so that he changes everything. He is the power to repent. He's the power to repent if you are a Christian. So you have no excuse what John is saying. You have no excuse. He died for you to remove any reason of fear of repenting. And the Holy Spirit has been poured into your heart to remove any inability to repent. You can. And so John says, repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do you know what repentance is? It's one of those churchy words that we throw around pretty regularly. Maybe don't ever define it clearly enough. It isn't simply feeling regret, feeling sorrow. It isn't feeling anything first and foremost, nor is it speaking. 
It's not feeling sorry or saying you're sorry. Have you had the experience of someone doing something time and time and time again, and then coming to you every time they do it, this wrong or this damaging thing, and they say, I'm sorry. And then they do it. Sorry. And then do it again. Sorry. To the point where, where you're so sick of them saying this and, and, and then repeating the very action that they're saying that they're sorry for, that you're about to explode upon them and say to them, I'm so sick of you saying you're sorry. I don't want you to be sorry. I want you to be different. Well, repentance is beginning to be different. The Greek word translated repentance is metanoia. It's this military term that means about face. It's literally turning around and going in the opposite direction. Repentance is being different. It's not, first of all, feeling something or saying something. It's doing something. In fact, it's oftentimes choosing to do something you don't feel like doing in the moment, but you do it because you're listening to God's word and his wisdom and not your own thoughts and your own feelings. So repentance is being different and it's doing, and you can be different. You can do the about face. You can, you have the power within you. You can produce a new life and different fruit. And you can begin now, even today, because in the end, all of your doing, if you're a Christian is first and foremost, God's doing. And so what about face do you need to do? And with whom? Let me give you an idea and I'll close. And the idea comes from the very end of the Old Testament. Do you know how the Old Testament ends? It ends with the prophet Malachi saying this, behold, I will send you the prophet Elijah. And John the Baptist was the fulfillment of this prophecy. He's the, he's the Elijah to come. Behold, I will send you the prophet Elijah. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. It seems for God that the worst thing in the world is the breaking down of the family and the estrangement that results. And when that happens in a society and a culture, it's evidence that God's final and in some ways his worst curse has come. And therefore also his greatest desire would be and his greatest grace given would be the very opposite. And that's the reconciliation and restoration of families. And Advent is especially a time for that, for reconciliation. And when reconciliation comes, it's the clearest indication that God has come and he's begun to work. And so arguably the most important way that we can participate in the life of God at this time of the year in Advent is to seek reconciliation, beginning especially with our families. I can't tell you the number of times that I've seen relationships and families, whether between spouses or parents and children, or even between siblings, seen them fracture and remain broken because one or more of the family members won't repent, just refuse to repent. But on the other hand, I've seen marriages and families brought back from what looked like utter and complete disaster and misery and hopelessness. And every time that that happens, it always begins with two words. And they're not, you're wrong. They are, I'm sorry. And then the one who says they're sorry bears fruit in keeping with those words. So say you're sorry and bear fruit. Do you remember the movie, The Princess Bride? It's playing a lot right now. Uh, and it does always at this time of the year. And the scene there also, do you remember the scene when Wesley goes into the pit of despair? He's told there by the jailer, don't even think of trying to escape. The chains are too thick. Don't dream of rescue because only the prince, the count, and me know how to get in and out. And so Wesley then says, then I'm here till I die. 
when the jailer says, yes, until I kill you. And then he does kill him. Wesley does die there, but he's only mostly dead. And so his friends take him to Miracle Max, who tells him he's only mostly dead. And if you're mostly dead, that means you're slightly alive. And so Miracle Max raises Wesley from being mostly dead. And if you are a Christian, regardless of what pit of despair you are in, you are at least slightly alive. You cannot be otherwise. And you can be brought back to the experience of true, real, and full life, even now with yourself, in your marriage, with friends that you have lost, with your family, with whatever, because God's very spirit dwells within you, in your heart. But being brought back to full life requires repentance. It is the proper response when God appears. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would be a people of repentance and that we would truly sorrow over that which is wrong with us and with our world and our lives, but that that sorrow would lead to joy. It would lead, even as we've already sung, to rejoicing that you yourself have come for us. You have come for us and you have come to us to forgive us and to change us. So may you continue to prosecute that change even now in these moments. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.